Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? F is for Marianne Faithful. Born the 29th of December 1946 in Hampstead in London, a father, Major Robert Glynn Faithful, British Army, uh, and also a professor of Italian literature at Bedford College of London University. Mm. Wow. And uh, her mother was Eva, who was a daughter of an Austro-Hungarian nobleman. So what a beginning, eh? Yeah. Starts performing on the folk circuit in London around 1964, all the coffee houses and the rest of it. Of course, you know, she becomes embroiled in the whole swinging London thing. There are parties every in early 64, she went to a party at the Rolling Stones where she met Andrew Lou Goldham, who then took her on as an artist. And so you can imagine like Andrew Lou Goldham thinking, right, we've got a songwriting team here with Jagger and Richards and you've got this beautiful young lady who can sing. And so, and so she ended up on the books pretty quickly, didn't she? It makes sense, doesn't it, that they give her as tears go by? Yes, released in the June of 1964. So she was doing various gigs, like, you know, just coffee houses generally. Mm. Well, then, obviously, a profile was upped by the new management. And it was Tuesday the 1st of December. She uh, started out on a package tour at the ABC Cinema in Wigan, which is just over there. And uh, on the bill, Gene Pitney, Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Kinks, The Mike Cotton Sound, and there were a few other bands, as is often the case with these big tours, who didn't even get a mention on the bill. And within that was Davy Jones and the Manish Boys. It's a great thought, isn't it? Imagine being there. Of that gig, she later said, I've known David Bowie practically since he was a baby, obviously alluding to that gig. So we move on now to 22nd of August 1973, and Bowie asks uh, Marianne Faithful if she'll star in a production that he's working on. And a month later, the first of three days shooting what became the 1980 floor show uh, starts at the Marquee in London, which was an event, as you say, it was... um, uh, Marian Faithful was there, dressed as a nun, wasn't she? She was dressed as a nun. We've talked about this previously on, uh, on our programme. And, uh, yeah, th- so it had a slit up the back and uh, she, w- she was underdressed, put it that way. Yes. And it was Trevor Boulder who said that he was quite distracted whilst trying to uh, play bass guitar <laughs> with her wandering on and doing a version of I Got You uh, with David Bowie. Yeah, the Sonny and Cher tune, that's yeah. right. But, the, you know, the 1984 show at the yes. Marquee, I was a member of the, uh, the fan club oh. and, and I did get an invite to go to it, but... Uh, at that point in time, I was 12 years old and probably not with permission from my parents. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Herbie Flowers. 
Herbie Flowers, born Brian Keith Herbie Flowers, uh, 19th of May 1938, famous for playing electric bass, double bass and tuba. Noted probably as a member of Blue Mink, uh, was in T-Rex for a while, and also Sky, and certainly one of the go-to session bassists of the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Born in Isleworth, Middlesex, began his musical training in 1956 when he was conscripted into the Royal Air Force, first of all deciding to be a bandsman playing tuba. Yeah, now this stood him in good stead, actually, unlikely as it might seem. I mean, Trevor Boulder learned to play trumpet, didn't he, at mm. an early age and plays mm. it on kooks. Mm. Well, uh, the tuba crops up. I don't know if he ever played it for Bowie, but he definitely played it for uh, Lou Reed on Transformer. Well, for Bowie and Mick Ronson on Transformer ah. uh, in Goodnight Ladies and Makeup. Ah. I mean, good, Goodnight Ladies is pretty much all tuba. It is. You don't often get the chance to say that. <laughs> don't think I've ever heard you say all tuba before, but well done for doing it. There you go. He then took up the double bass as a second instrument in order to secure his junior technician stripe, uh, later moving on to electric bass. After finishing his time in the military, he passed through uh, lineups of various Dixieland jazz bands in the early 60s, and then his big thing was modern jazz. Yeah, 1965, he was engaged as a bandsman on the Ocean Line and the Queen Elizabeth. So, yeah, he got to New York, he was in a nightclub, and he heard somebody playing a Fender jazz bass, and that was it, he fell in mm. love with that instrument. He went round the corner to Manny's, I've been in Manny's, it's a legendary guitar shop, yeah. uh, and bought a bass guitar Fender Jazz for $79. Wow, OK. So 1969, now he's a founder member of Blue Mink. Uh, he plays on the song Melting Pot, was a massive hit, number three in the uh, UK. Also was a member of CCS and the final lineup of T-Rex, we mentioned before. Skip forward to 79. He'd been in the song for Europe. He played in there uh, performing Mr Moonlight and he becomes a co-founder of the band Sky, who are massively successful in their own right. And we've got to mention, of course, when it comes to songwriting, he is famous for writing Grandad for yeah, Clive Dunn. He did. He co-wrote it didn't he and he said that uh, it was Ken Pickett a friend of his who he did asked to come round to his house and he and he, he, he ran the doorway ding dong ding dong you're lovely oh. yeah, so he, I don't know if anybody who actually came up with the two notes for the doorbell wants mm. some royalties on oh. that but you're probably not getting them but he was uh, he was just a great session musician yeah. wasn't he I mean it would often be the case that you know you, we've talked about Jimmy Page and big Jim Sullivan playing um, guitar for loads of different sessions mm. for Shell Tell Me and all those guys and they'd have uh, Clem Clatini uh, playing drums on loads of different things and, and Herbie Flowers was just one of the go-to oh. guys wasn't he and if you don't aren't familiar with his work as a session player of course he did that very famous bass line on Walk on the Wild Side from Transformer which he said uh, it does sound so great and so unique because he thought I'm, I'm onto a trick here mm. yeah and this is quite well known but he, he, he played the, the bass part the sliding bass part on the double bass sounded great but he, he suggested if he did a descending bass line as well it would sound brilliant mm. and it really made that song what it is and that was so he got a double session fee yeah, and he was more than happy with that. So <laughs> not you know, if you look at Ronnie Ross plays saxophone on it, and he got fifty quid for the session. Yeah, and Herbie Flowers just got a double session fee, and it is those two things which, are, along with a lot of the Warhol stars that I mentioned by Lou Reed, and a great song in itself. Uh, but those those extra uh, you know other parts that were thrown yeah. in there by other people probably deserve some kind of credit. But no, not bitter. No. Just really happy. He got a double fee for it. He was like, I'm in it. Yeah, a good day at the office and the rest of it. And, and for me, on a personal level I really adore that really snaky bass line he does on that rock on which by David Essex really for me just makes the song itself it does once again yeah terrific and then yeah well, after Sky he then was working as a teacher teaching bass guitar and then running at rock shops as he called them at, at schools helping young people to create their own music I remember seeing him on a kids TV program on a Saturday morning and he was talking about playing bass I don't even know what band he would have been in at the time could have been Sky mm. um, but uh, somebody said to him oh you know and, and you teach bass as well and he said yes that's right yeah he said, 
said, right, okay, well, how can people get hold of you? And I'm in the phone book. <laughs> so <laughs> a very unassuming yeah. guy. So uh, you've interviewed him. I have, yeah. He's a I've lovely guy. Him. Yeah, he's just, he's just so great. So the Bowie connection, mm. this is where that comes. We're going to the late 60s now. And so he was had this reputation. We just talked about it. And he's working for producers like Shel Talmy and Mickey Most and Steve Rowland, Richard Perry, Gus Dudgeon. Anthony Visconti. Yeah, okay. So uh, he f- first meets Bowie at Maida Vale in the late 60s doing these uh, BBC sessions for live radio. And he's uh, quoted here, he says, in 1967, Bowie had me do these recordings to the BBC and Tony Visconti said, we need a bass player. There's this bloke called Herbie Flowers. That's a much better name than David Richmond or Leslie Hurdle, which is contentious in itself. So I was asked to do the job, uh, but because I was more interested in jazz, I just didn't play what was expected, which is probably ex- right up Bowie Street, just what he wanted. Well, if you think about Mike Garson as well, that was the same thing, yeah. wasn't it? He got him in for the avant-garde and the jazz that he was doing, and mm. maybe this maybe this just set the seed for Bowie, just uh, approaching what he had in his mind uh, from a different angle. But anyway, Gus Dudgeon and David Bowie, uh, they just loved the way that he played, and so his first major recording session was for Space Oddity, for mm. Bowie, anyway. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not really it's not really a huge part of the, the song, is it? No, it isn't, but it turns into a great sort of solo at the end, doesn't it, on the yeah. outro? Yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. wonderful. Um, Flowers remembered it later, calling it a magic day in the studio because I'd come through you know, the jazz system. Bowie was fascinated by all that. But even what really struck us at the time, he said, is that Bowie knew exactly what he wanted, even at that young age. He had the idea in his whole vision in his head. Yeah, so later, 1969, Bowie and George Underwood, his schoolhood friend, of course, uh, recorded a single at Trident Studios called Hole in the Ground mm. with Herbie Flowers on the bass and Terry Cox on drums. But that never... that well, It came out eventually. Yeah. I've heard it anyway, put it that way. OK, so in November 1973, members of Blooming, including Flowers and Alan Park, the guitar player, appeared on Holy Holy uh, by Bowie. Tony DeFries wanted Flowers to produce it because of his uh, success with Blue Mio, a chart success. It just makes sense. It stands to reason, doesn't it? He might get us a hit here. And there is a great story that Di Davis told me. He mentioned him about he worked for Main Man and one of his first jobs, if not his first job, was to go with Bowie from London to Manchester to Granada to meet up with the members of Blue Mink ah. to record uh, some footage for uh, for Holy Holy. Wow. And he talked to Bowie all the way there and all the way back and, and Bowie did actually unveil in his mind uh, to Di Davis this idea of Ziggy Stardust. So we hope to talk to Di oh. about that at some point. Uh, but uh, it, one interesting thing that came out of it, which I'd never heard before, uh, was the fact that it was Tony Wilson, who was a, a TV presenter in this part of the yeah. world, in Manchester, for Granada uh, and then later went on to form Factory Records, Joy Division, New Order, all that stuff. Uh, but he was a researcher on the programme and he was the person who booked Bowie in. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, that's amazing. Just as a sort of curio here, there was a single recorded in 1971 by a male escort called Mickey King, who was a friend of Bowie's from the Sombrero Club, which was a gay disco in London, and Mickey King singing Rupert the Riley with Bowie on backing vocals and sax and Herbie Flowers playing bass on it. Right, OK. And Herbie Flowers also played on something we've mentioned quite a bit before, which was Moon Age Daydream yeah. and, and, that, and that stuff for Arnold Corns. Of course. And then we kind of skip forward, don't we, to uh, Bowie and the Diamond Dogs tour of 74 and Herbie Flowers being brought in uh, to play bass on that tour. We've sort of covered this partially, haven't we? We have, really. I mean, in a nutshell, uh, a great musician alongside other great musicians, quite often behind the set and you wouldn't yeah. see them. David Live, they turn up to the Tower Theatre in Philadelphia Philadelphia, recognise it's going to be recorded. Herbie Flowers spokesman has a fight with Bowie. They get more money. 
the record comes out. That's a crazy, but it's under D for David Live. It is. It? And there's worth mentioning a quote here that Flowers said later about David Live. He said, I can claim to be a genius for setting up the tension before we did that show. Before we went on stage, the feeling of liberation in the band was glorious. A lot of people say, yeah, you can hear the fact that the, the band aren't happy on David Live and they're all disgruntled. And, and he's saying, yeah, you can hear the tension, which makes the record great. And you're not keen on it. And I love it. So. I know. There you go. It divides opinion. The Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. F is for the farewell show, Ziggy's farewell show. Yeah, or the final show, which is also F, so that works. Ziggy's last stand, the 3rd of July 1973, the Hammersmith Odeon, the second of two shows in two nights. So uh, these shows were put on to replace the second Earl's Court show, which had been cancelled because the first one was such a debacle. Yeah. Again, under E uh, in the podcast series. But uh, it came at the end of a fractious UK tour. This is well known. And it was supposed to be the last show of the UK tour, but not the last show for the Spiders from Mars. There was a, a US tour lined up. Mm. There was even talk of them going to Russia and China. Yeah, that's uh, right. But the band weren't very harmonious, were they, Bob? And there was a reason for that, wasn't there? So they'd already found out that they were getting paid, well, much less than the new boy, Mike Garson, on piano. But they were still enjoying the rock and roll lifestyle. They hadn't tired of all that, so it wasn't like they were looking to quit or anything. So they just thought this tour is just going to roll and roll. Yeah, and it was filmed by D.A. Pennybacker, who had worked with Bob Dylan previously, and the star-studded audience again been there, Ringo Starr and the Jaggers and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, mm, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So the show itself went off, as far as I'm aware, without any great hitches. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the filming wasn't helped by the fact that there was uh, there was flash photography going on, because I, I believe there were a lot of the signs about saying, do not, you know, do not engage right. in flash photography, because okay. it'll upset the filming or mm. whatever. Well, and there was, uh, which makes it look even better, really. I mean, it's not a brilliantly filmed no, piece, is not. it? No, Let's it's be not. honest. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the story starts, really, uh, the intriguing part, with Hutch. Yeah, so you got uh, Hutch Hutchinson back in Bowie's fold here, playing guitar with him on stage. So he gets an inkling here before anybody else, probably. Uh, he knew something was afoot, uh, because Bowie normally would finish with rock and roll suicide, and he'd just give him the little nod cue, and he knew he'd be in. But he told him beforehand uh, not to start this tune until he gave him a certain nod. Mm. OK, so then came the announcement itself. Bowie, uh, this show will stay the longest in our memories, not just because it's the end of the tour, because it's the last show we'll ever do. And then you hear on the film, you just hear the crowd kind of in dismay, don't you? This sort of great chorus of, of disappointment. And Woody Woodbands, he said that he famously shouted over to Trevor Boulder, what the <laughs> did he say? And then he threw uh, his drumstick at yeah. Bowie and missed him. Um, but yeah, so obviously, if you think about rock and roll suicide with the acoustic guitar starting it, so there's Hutch in the background, mm. just waiting to set it rolling. And uh, it was just Bowie turned round and winked at him once he dropped the bombshell. Yeah. And and the band are looking at each other. The story being that Mick Ronson knew what was going on, yeah. uh, but certainly uh, Woody and Trevor didn't. And no. who else knows about Mike Garson and all the other guys playing in in the background? You mm. know. Yeah, absolutely. And all this, of course, after Jeff Beck had joined them for the encore, doing uh, Gene Genie and Love Me Do, and in the after show shots all the famous people are there of course in the cafe royal including jeff beck but conspicuously of course there's no trevor or woody I've never I've never asked woody about this you know but i mean it, they must have been absolutely uh shell-shocked and grief-stricken and angry mm. and then everybody goes off and, and swans to the to the after-show party and there's champagne and, and rock stars and film stars and comedians everywhere. I wonder I wonder if they were there but were off in a corner somewhere just like, you know, frassum grassamin. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Owen Frampton. Yeah, Owen Frampton, born Kennington, London, 1919. His dad was a Royal Navy submariner based at Chatham in Kent. And the Frampton family moved from South London to Sheerness to be closer to the naval uh, dockyard. Before the Second World War, Frampton was educated in Beckenham, where he met his future wife, Peggy. Later studied for a degree at Goldsmiths College in New Cross, intending to become a teacher. And his musical kind of interest was starting to take hold already there because he's playing guitar in a college dance band. OK, so it was after the outbreak of war in 1939 that he joined the army and became a lieutenant in the Royal Artillery. And it was, uh, it was during the war that he saw action as a gunner in North Africa, in Sicily, and Monte Cassino in Italy mm. as well. So, you know, I mean, and he had some uh, pretty uh, traumatic affairs, didn't he? Uh, absolutely. So in 1945, uh, he stays on in Austria and he was involved in the repatriation of uh, Russian prisoners of war, specifically the white Russians who were uh, who had kind of fought with Germany. So there was, he was ordered to uh, send them back on train carriages. But he said that it, it all kind of changed for him when these empty carriages came back and they would be bloodstained. And he realised, didn't realise at the time, of course, when he was sending them, but he realised later that they would rather commit suicide than go back to suffer what awful fate they knew they were going to suffer back home. So this was such a massive incident in his life, as you can imagine, that he was horrified, he immediately resigned uh, and he came back to England, probably very traumatised. You would be. God, how would you get through that? So, uh, to 1946, and he came back to England and studied in the evenings at Beckenham Art School whilst teaching design, uh, lithography, printing, photography, ceramics and painting. Is that all? Yeah, he's a talented fella, yeah. Became head of an expanded art department as the school moved from Beckenham to Bromley. Mm. So this is where Bowie comes in, of course, mm. isn't it? So Bowie falls under his spell at Bromley Tech. Bowie said, I went to one of the first art-orientated high schools in England where one could take an art course from the age of 12. Three-fourths of our class actually did go on to art school. So September 1960 now, the start of the school year at Bromley Tech. Bowie is 13 and he's in class 3A with his good mate, George Underwood, 
under the uh, stewardship of the form master, who is Owen Frampton. So, I mean, it's quite revolutionary what they're doing here, yeah. isn't it? I yeah. mean, you know, just en- encouraging kids. And we've mentioned before the fact that Owen Frampton, uh, good on him. He did say that uh, to, to Peter Frampton, his lad, more of whom, uh, no, you're all right, you get that guitar, you go off and enjoy mm. yourself, go and play with your mate David Bowie, and you don't worry about academia, yeah. which from which is like most parents' standpoint, really, but f- coming from a, a teacher, an academic, absolutely, uh, just a, a really liberating attitude. Yeah. There is a draft copy of a book that Owen Frampton wrote called Way, the autobiography of a teacher of art and design, which was written in the mid-70s. And he says, recalling that time, there was David Jones and his friend George Underwood. David was quite unpredictable, completely misunderstood by most of my teaching colleagues, he says. But in those days, cults were unfashionable. And David, by the age of 14, was already a cult figure, which is that's, a great thing, isn't that's it? That's something else, that, isn't he? And he also said, at this period in my teaching career, I was thoroughly used to very individualistic pupils and was rarely surprised by anything that occurred, even when David... David varied the colour of his hair or cropped it short or plucked his eyebrows. I accepted his actions as a means of projecting his personality and of that he had plenty. This is my favourite bit though coming up. So all that, okay, so you've got this great liberal arts teacher and the rest of it who, you know, encouraging this, but you've got to draw the line somewhere, haven't you? But, yes. Yeah. So he draws the line. Bowie starts a trend at school for wearing tapered trousers. Uh, Frampton, the story goes, stopped the class, gave them all a very big lecture on the uh, dangers of flouting uh, regulation classes clothing and how they wouldn't be tolerated at school. That just seems completely at odds of what we've just said. So it he's plucking his eyebrows and just doing all manner of, like, you know, unusual things, but mm. tapered trousers oh. doesn't sound that uh, outlandish. But anyway, so he, uh, David Bowie left school with one O-level pass, which was in art. art. It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then, uh, how lovely, just again, you know, so uh, Owen Frampton gets David Bowie a job. Mm. So he's not only educated him, he takes him to the next stage as well as a junior visualiser yeah. uh, on Old Bond Street. Yeah, it's just so great, isn't it? But he was worried about but how well he was going to make a living. So he leaves school with one O level, great at art, of course, but where, what's he going to do with himself? And he says later, I did experience a sense of relief when I uh, found employment for both him and George Underwood in advertising studios. At the time, I thought that probably would be the last I would ever hear of either of them. He passed away in 2005 as well, didn't he? Sounds like a great bloke. The Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. F is for Peter Frampton. So, at the same time as Owen Frampton joined the staff at Bromley Tech, his lad, Peter, who was three years younger than David Bowie, started there, Okay, Peter Kenneth Frampton, he was born in Bromley, Kent. He first became interested in music when he was seven years old. He discovered his grandmother's banjolele in the attic, leave it, and he taught himself to play it. And uh, and he later went on to teach himself how to play guitar and piano. So, obviously, it's in his bones. Yeah, absolutely. He's doing all this before the age of eight. All the bands he loves, Cliff Richard and Shadows, Buddy Holly, Eddie Crock and all that kind of stuff. He really gets into uh, Django Reinhardt, though, introduced to him by his dad, Owen. Right, OK. And by the age of 12, he's playing in a band called The Little Ravens. Now, they're named after the uh, Bromley Tech emblem, which had been designed by his dad. So keeping it in the family here. Yeah, bit of class. And so both uh, Peter Frampton and Bowie, as mentioned before, got to know each other around about this time when Frampton started at the same school. The Little Ravens played on the same bill at school as Bowie's band, 
George and the Dragons. That's not a great band name, is it? Let's oh, face it. I don't know. Um, but uh, Frampton and Bowie would sing and play guitar together on the stairs of the art department, apparently, just, you know, chilling out and, mm. and getting to know how to, uh, getting to learn the craft, if you like. Yeah. George Underwood would be there too, uh, doing songs by the Everleys and Buddy Holly. Uh, Peter Frampton did say to me once, he remembered that time, he said, the very first song I ever sang publicly was Peggy Sue, and that was with uh, David and George Underwood. Moment in time. Yeah, not surprisingly, the young Peter Frampton, he found it very hard being at the school that his dad taught yeah, at. So he would. he would get bullied and people would call him sir and he would get beaten up every now and then mm. and sadly, kind of inevitable really. Yeah, that's why he was sent to uh, Bromley Grammar, wasn't it? Although... Uh, Bowie and George Underwood stayed on. He said later, when David saw me on top of the pops from their first group, The Herd, he shouted, that's Peter, he should be in school. Yeah, um, so The Herd were a great band uh, from the underworld, really, really brilliant. But I mean, he'd been in loads of bands before. There was a True Beats and there was also The Preachers, Mm. which was a band produced and managed by Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. But it was 1965 that The the Herd were founded, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, So he's still a young lad at this point, of course, isn't he? Singer and guitar player, still only 16 when he joined them in 66. Just fresh from leaving school. Owen Frampton, I love this. Owen Frampton was uh, Peter's first manager. Uh, and Frampton says here, he said, uh, when the herd asked me to join, uh, he said, my dad said, if Peter worked at the post office, he'd get 15 quid a week. Uh, so he should get the same in the herd. As it turned out, unfortunately, the band were earning a lot more, but I still only got my 15 pounds. <laughs> oh, dad didn't even think about that. I got rid of him as my manager soon after. In 1967, From the Underworld was released, number six in the UK. Yeah, October 67, supported Jimi Hendrix experience at Savile Theatre. The really big hit was I Don't Want Our Loving to Die, which is March 1968. He was also voted the face of 1968, and when he got, we'll get to it a little bit later on. But when he got really famous in the uh, in the mid 70s, he was seen to be the pretty boy, yeah. wasn't he? I mean, uh, and, and that that part of his uh, kind of persona took off for him as well, being a poster boy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so he ended up forming in 1968 Humble Pie with Stevie Marriott, and he's still only 18. That's the incredible thing here. Very talented guy, a mate of mine. I have got a mate, Tony Husband. Hello, Tony. Uh, he told me the story of going to see Humble Pie in Manchester. In might have even been the first time that he saw David Bowie, uh, but he he was stood beside one of the. They're quite an oikish band, weren't they? Humble yeah, Pie, in a way. Yeah. I mean, Stevie Marriott was uh, so brilliant, but quite larry, and um, and I'm presuming the audience was as well because Tony Husband stopped somebody in the audience from throwing a pint pot at Bowie Ooh. while he was opening for him because he didn't get it. Right. Oh wow. I mean, to give an idea of just how talented Peter Frampton was, he was doing recording sessions as well for people like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Harry Nielsen, and uh, John Ent whistle on his album uh, Whistle Rhymes. In 1972, though, uh, Pete Drake introduced him to the talk box, which became a bit of a trademark. And when we get to Frampton Comes Alive, which was the album that made him a megastar, the talk box is all over that, isn't there? It is. It was kind of, again, that was a bit of a double-edged sword for him because it kind of helped make him famous. But then again, he was a bloke with a... Yeah. So he'd, he'd have to live with that as well, wouldn't he? <laughs> Absolutely. So Frampton Comes Alive, recorded live, surprisingly, in 1976. So this spawns tunes like Baby I Love Your Way, Show Me The Way, Do You Feel Like uh, We Do? And he's massive in the States. And for a long time... I think this was the biggest selling live album of all time uh, and he was in the Guinness Book of Records and the rest of it. He sold more copies of Fleetwood Mac's album, Fleetwood Mac, in 1976. Mm. So we, we were talking just absolutely ginormous. Eight million copies. Yeah. The biggest selling live album at that point in time, possibly still. Yeah. So, of course, he's on the cover of Rolling Stone and there was a picture of him with his shirt off. And as you say, he's the pretty boy. He's mm. photogenic and the rest of it. He's perfect for... He looks like the all-American clean-cut kid, doesn't he, at this point? But it starts to just really annoy him and he becomes, quote, cliches here, but a prisoner of his own success. He just can't get away from this image. He doesn't like it at all. He just wants to play music. 
And that was where the uh, the Bowie um, relationship came back again, wasn't mm. it? 1987. So it's never let me down and the Glass Spider tour, which, mm. you know, uh, most people would agree it wasn't the best part of no. Bowie's career or the best tour. Uh, but uh, he loved it. Yeah. He absolutely loved it because there was no pressure on him. I yeah. mean, he was just like David Bowie's guitarist. There weren't many people in the world around about when Frampton came alive that was big as Frampton and Bowie wasn't. Yeah. But you go a bit further down the line and David Bowie is bigger than him, he's still a name, but he's just playing guitar on the sidelines with his mate. And there's some footage released there quite recently, just uh, some Super 8 footage, oh, yeah. and then both romping around in Europe. I'm not sure if he's in France or something, ah. but they're just two mates just yeah. milling about, you know, and enjoying themselves. Yeah. It's, just, it's great to see, and you can tell he's absolutely loving it. Yeah, so as you say, he just has this great sense of freedom because he's not trying to sell anything, he's just enjoying himself on stage. Yeah. Just worth mentioning as well, go forward to t- uh, the year 2000, and Frampton is in Almost Famous, isn't he? He's a consultant for the film even teaching uh, Billy Crudup how to play guitar. So he's literally placing his fingers on a fretboard and doing it that way. Right, OK. So a very talented chap. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Glam Rock, Gail Ann Dorsey, Ricky Gardner... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.